From me to Japan, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Rock Science Show. Coming up on today's show, Dr. Scott Barrett will join us to talk about the climate problem. So stay tuned for this and the Grokotron 5000 coming up in a few moments. Welcome back to the program. Well, most scientists would agree that global climate change is the greatest dilemma that the planet is facing. Even with growing evidence that climate change is causing disruptions to the Earth's ecosystems, politicians are at a loggerhead in terms of、uh, creating collective action. Well, joining us here today is Dr. Scott Barrett from the University of Columbia to talk to us about the processes underlying these climate negotiations. And his recent research on their barriers. Dr. Barrett, thank you so much for joining us on Rock Science today. It's my pleasure.、Uh, to give us a little context, can you tell us a little bit about the UNFCCC,、uh, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change,、uh, that underlie these negotiations? Sure, I can give you a, a brief history of the entire、uh, arc of climate negotiations. The political concern about the issue arose in the late 1980s. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, just around 89, 88, 89, 1990, and around that time, a number of countries announced that they would pledge unilaterally to meet some kind of emission ceiling for carbon dioxide. And then what happened is they realized that it really didn't pay any one country to take action unless they were assured that others were going to take action. And so very quickly, we moved from a Uh, this kind of unilateral declaration stage into a negotiation stage, and this led、uh, ultimately to the negotiation of the Framework Convention in 1992. Now, that agreement,、uh, people forget, but countries are actually trying to negotiate an agreement in which they pledge to limit their emissions, and that failed. And the Framework Convention that emerged is an overarching convention. It really doesn't tell any country to do anything, and it's really for that reason that participation in that agreement is universal. Every country is in the agreement. The important thing about that particular agreement is Article Two, which says that countries agree that they should take collective action to limit atmospheric concentrations so as to avoid dangerous, and you can put that word in quotation marks. Dangerous interference with the climate system.、Mm-hmm. So, there's, so there's universal agreement we should do that. And then the next stage of the negotiations was to try again to get countries to limit their emissions. That led ultimately to the Kyoto Protocol,、uh, which was adopted in 1997. The negotiations on Kyoto, however, didn't finish until I think it was 2001.、Mm-hmm. And it took a number of years from there for Kyoto to enter into force. It's widely recognized that this is a grossly inadequate agreement.、Uh, participation has been a problem. The United States is not a participant.、Uh, Canada is withdrawing from the agreement, and most of the countries that are in the agreement are not obligated really to do anything. So overall, we basically have the biggest collective action problem in world history, and our efforts so far 
to try to address it by means of a treaty have totally failed. You mentioned the Kyoto Protocol as, I think, one of the milestones in terms of trying to get a global agreement. Um, some people say the inspiration behind that is the Montreal Protocol, which was used to limit um, refrigerants and other gases that destroy the ozone layer. And uh, I think most of us would agree that it has been a success. Uh, what are the main differences and why the Kyoto Protocol is much harder to ratify? Yeah, so it is important. That's a very good question. Uh, the first thing to say is that the Montreal Protocol was negotiated under the Reagan administration. It was ratified by the U.S. Senate 83 to 0. Uh, that was a Republican-dominated Senate. The world was a different place back then. Now, this treaty, the Montreal Protocol, is an ingenious treaty. Uh, as well, the ozone problem is quite different from the climate problem. And it's really for those two reasons that we've had a lot more success. The design of the Kyoto Protocol does reflect some aspects of uh, Montreal. And it did from the very beginning, by the way. The, the first meeting of countries to talk about what to do about climate change came right on the heels of uh, the Montreal Protocol. And there was a natural view that, well, here's another global atmospheric problem. We've got one formula that seems to work for the ozone layer. Why can't we just sort of model that and develop a, a, a similar treaty for the climate? So that was the basic reasoning. And that reasoning was wrong. And the reason was wrong, uh, by the way, you, you could tell at the time it was wrong. It's not just looking back uh, with hindsight. The reason the approach for climate needs to be different that it is a, a different problem. Let me just mention um, a couple of the things about Montreal that are different from the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, first of all, what's similar is this idea of setting targets and timetables for reducing uh, emissions. What's different is that in the case of carbon, the Kyoto Protocol looks at emissions as emissions coming out of um, power plants and other sources within an entire economy. Mm -hmm. And the Montreal Protocol is looking at the production and consumption of chemicals. So immediately it was, it was put not as just emissions, but as production and consumption, and it limited both, whereas the Kyoto Protocol only limits the emissions associated with uh, the, the production of energy, uh, the, use, the use of energy. Mm -hmm. So in other words, um, you can have a country like the United Kingdom, which has reduced its emissions as they occur on the territory of the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. and yet you can have the United Kingdom importing products produced from countries like China, where emissions have been rising. And it's really um, a, a kind of a smoke and mirrors game that it looks like the United Kingdom is doing a lot. Depends on your perspective. Mm -hmm. If it's in terms of where the emissions occur, you know, the United Kingdom is reducing emissions. If it's in terms of the emissions associated with consumption by the United Kingdom, then of course it's a very different picture. So Montreal addressed that from the very beginning, and the Kyoto Protocol didn't. The, the way it's framed right now, and I think uh, some economists and game theorists have looked at this, it, are we seeing just this one big you know, prisoner's dilemma problem where everyone is just trying to, to maximize their advantage in these negotiations? Or they're just very, as you said, just no strategy at all? Well, you know, the, the problem is at one level quite simple, and that is, all countries know that collectively, collectively, the world as a whole will be much better off if we all take steps to limit emissions. Mm -hmm. But each individual negotiator is representing his or her own country. Right. And that person also knows that that country is better off not taking action or taking less action 
given the action taken by other countries. Mm-hmm. So each negotiator is going to be constantly of two minds. <laughs> you know, part of part of you know one part of the mind is focusing on the collective, and the other is focusing on the individual. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it would be naive to say we should only have one mind in the room because everyone knows that these motivations, both motivations, exist. So the problem is, how can you realign the incentives so that everyone has an individual incentive to act in a way that conforms with the collective welfare. And uh, that's that's where the strategy comes in. And unfortunately, Kyoto doesn't have any kind of strategy for changing those incentives. Or to put it a little differently, I think most countries would be willing to take steps to address climate if they were assured that others were going to take steps and that all those step all those steps combined would actually make a material difference. That was one of the objections voiced by the Senate about the design of the Kyoto Protocol. I'm not mm. saying that that was the only thing that was at work there, but but clearly all countries are going to need to convince their own publics that if they bear a cost for addressing climate change, others will also bear a cost. So there's an element of fairness here. And at the same time, all of this is going to deliver a benefit for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think that the Kyoto Protocol design has not really been able to convince people of all of that. In your recent paper um, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, you had suggested that uncertainty would hamper the decision-making. Uh, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I think it's a pretty astonishing result. Um, yes, I wrote this paper with my co-author, Astrid Dannenberg, who is a postdoc fellow at Columbia. And uh, what we're looking at in this paper is not just the kind of ordinary climate change, which is a collective action problem, but also the possibility that there may exist dangerous thresholds. And if we cross the threshold, uh, you may get very large changes that will be uh, negative. Mm -hmm. You can call this dangerous climate change or catastrophic climate change, Mm -hmm. uh, abrupt and catastrophic climate change, something like that. So there's a big fear about this. As I mentioned before, the Framework Convention on Climate Change was framed in such a way as we would take action to avoid dangerous climate change. And science has since then tried to explain what that might mean. In particular, the focus has been on dramatic regime shifts in basic geophysical systems. So you can think of things like uh, melting of polar ice caps, shifts in the uh, North Atlantic circulation, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're looking at in, in our paper would be whether the fear of this kind of catastrophic climate change, whether it would change the nature of the negotiations. Mm-hmm. And what we show, and it's pretty convincing and pretty amazing, I think, is that if the threshold that triggers catastrophe is known for certain, you can think of it as a red line. Mm-hmm. If we know where that line is, then we have strong evidence based on how real people behave when real money is at stake. Mm-hmm. We have very strong evidence that they will be able to coordinate their actions to avoid crossing the red line. Right. When the red line is uncertain, so we know there is a red line, but we don't know exactly where it is, mm-hmm. all of this collapses. And it collapses because you go back into a collective action problem where, starting from any point of agreement, if I pull back a little bit, and I want to do that because I could avoid the cost of reducing emissions. If I pull back a little bit, the effect of that in avoiding catastrophe is going to be small because it's only going to increase the probability of crossing the red line a little bit. Right. 
That's a very big difference from when you know when you're standing on the precipice, and if you take one more step, you're going to fall off and and uh, and and die. You want to stay on the right side of the red line. If you're not sure where the red line is, that discipline disappears. And what we show in our paper is that once you've added uncertainty about the threshold, uh, behavior changes fundamentally, and efforts to avoid the threshold collapse. So this is what I think we're seeing. And I can actually phrase it in a way that I think is even more compelling. It really explains what we're seeing in the climate negotiations. So this is a way to think about it. Countries know where they ought to go. Okay, In our model, all the players know what everyone ought to do. Mm -hmm. So let's say that everyone agrees that we should stay within 350 parts per million. Mm -hmm. So everyone knows that. But when they make a proposal for what everyone ought to do, they don't propose 350. They propose something more like 400. Now, the reason they do that is that they feel that the 350, even though it's the right level, is the incentives for countries to actually fulfill uh, the promise of meeting 350 are so weak that, they, that that proposal for 350 wouldn't be taken seriously. So they back off from 350, and they propose something like 400. Then we let the players uh, pledge how much they will do individually. And this is similar to the way Copenhagen was structured. Mm -hmm. And what we find is that, the, is that the players then pledge to do less than required when you add up all the individual pledges to meet the proposal. So they know they should go to 350. They propose something like 400. Their pledges add up to something like 450. <laughs> okay? Mm -hmm. And then finally, we have the players make their actual choices about how much they're going to contribute to avoid catastrophe. And the contributions come in uh, so that basically the world exceeds 550 parts per million, and it's virtually guaranteed that there will be catastrophe. So what's amazing about this is that everyone knows what they need to do, and they can agree about what they need to do collectively. But what they can't do is somehow cement the deal that makes them actually make the actions needed to avoid catastrophe. And that's why the central problem for a problem like climate change is enforcement of an agreement to limit emissions. But for a lot of countries, uh, we have indeed passed the red line. I mean, you look at, say, the Maldives, where you know the country's going to face uh, inundation from sea level rise, or other island countries where some of them are you know, virtually gone. So why don't those examples spur uh, collective action? Right. So it's, it's, it's quite simple at one level. Uh, of course, the Maldives, first of all, uh, they, they're so small that they can't affect the outcome. They can't. Well, no matter what they do, they're not going to change the amount of climate change. So that's, that's partly uh, the problem. Um, another problem is, I think, you know, when I use the term catastrophe, uh, I think it's best used in quotation marks because I'm not really sure what it is. Now, this is going to sound... Um, kind of crass, and I don't mean it's come across that way, but just sort of think for a minute. Suppose that the Maldives were to be um, uh, washed over by the oceans. First of all, bear in mind that that kind of thing happens naturally over long periods of time. Mm -hmm. um, but this is a man-made problem. Mm -hmm. It'll happen over a shorter period of time. But nonetheless, what the Maldives are actually looking to do now is to acquire property somewhere else mm -hmm. to relocate its citizens. Now, this could sound like a, a very, a very bad thing, and in some level, in some ways, it is. On the other hand, it's also true that over the course of human history, people have relocated for all sorts of reasons. I'm not trying to defend, justify this, defend this. I'm just saying, when we actually ask ourselves about what is a true catastrophe, 
Uh, I, I, there are two problems with the Maldives example. One is that it's so small in relation to the entire world. We're talking about a very small number of people in relation to the entire world. And secondly, I think the adaptation, relocating somewhere else, is, is, is really not that bad. In fact, a couple, three, four generations later, it will barely be remarked upon by these people. So I think the kind of catastrophe we're thinking of uh, is something that's much bigger, uh, much more at a global scale, and something that would have consequences that would be uh, uh, much more uh, to be feared. What are some of these alternative strategies that you think might spur this international action? Let me say, first of all, this is the hardest problem. I work on lots of global issues. Uh -huh. and climate change is the hardest in human history. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's wrong to look at this in, in, in terms of ideals. Right. I think what you have are institutions that were never set up to address a problem like this. And therefore, it's, it's, it shouldn't surprise us that they failed so far. Having said all that, I think we could do a lot better. So let me just give uh, a concrete example. Um, just before I give the example, the, the research that I did with Astrid Dannenberg shows that the reason you can get cooperation when there's the prospect of a certain catastrophe, that is, we know where the red line is, uh, is that there's a strong incentive for the players to coordinate to avoid the red line. And what we know from international relations is that states are really good at coordinating uh, to, to avoid a situation that would be uh, harmful. The, the basic idea in terms of how we could do better would be to leverage that knowledge, and if nature is not going to give us the red line needed for coordination, maybe we can give it to ourselves. Now, here's, here's one suggestion. It's a very concrete suggestion, and I'm very confident that it would help us to address climate change, but it's not going to solve the problem all by itself. One of the gases controlled by the Kyoto Protocol is called uh, HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons. The same ones that underlie the ozone problem. Right. So these were developed as substitutes for the chemicals that were controlled to um, protect the ozone layer. These HFCs don't destroy ozone. So they're not covered under the Montreal Protocol, but they are a potent greenhouse gas. Mm -hmm. And what's significant about the HFCs is that they have the same commercial properties as the CFCs we controlled under Montreal. Mm -hmm. The Kyoto Protocol has been totally inept, and uh, it's been a real failure in terms of limiting the HFCs. Mm -hmm. Those HFCs, if we address those in a separate agreement, so this is the problem with Kyoto, it throws everything into the same agreement, even though the different gases have different properties, properties in terms of getting leverage for bringing about enforcement. So if we took the HFCs and we put them in the Montreal Protocol, even though they don't destroy the ozone layer, everything else about Montreal would work. Now, I'd rather, instead of having us put it in, into Montreal, and there are proposals from the United States and from other countries to do that, and I support those. I would even more, however, prefer that we develop a separate protocol on HFCs under the Framework Convention on Climate Change, because then we would have one protocol that we would know worked. That would be a symbolic success because it would then turn our attention to ask, are there other protocols that would work? The basic strategy I think we need is to break up this huge problem into little pieces. So that means looking at different gases. It also means looking at different sectors. So obviously the most important gas is carbon dioxide. The way to address carbon dioxide is not to throw everything together, but to take it apart into little pieces. Mm -hmm. And you really want to focus on sectors. Now one thing that Kyoto did that I actually support, um, 
and ironically, this is something that other people have criticized, so that tells you what the gap is in our understanding of uh, Kyoto, is uh, Kyoto um, separates out uh, the emissions associated with international air travel and international marine transport. Now, those two sectors are normally addressed uh, in, for, uh, by two organizations, the International Civil Aviation Organization for Air Travel right. and the International Maritime Organization for, for uh, Maritime Transport. And um, I do believe that that's right and that there should be negotiation of standards under those two organizations uh, to address climate change. Now, it's true that those negotiations have so far led nowhere. Mm-hmm. But I think what's wrong is to say, well, because they've led nowhere so far, we should we should change things. Uh, I think what we need to do is apply more pressure. The other thing is um, we have to be clear that there are not easy solutions to every one of these sectoral uh, problems. Right. Um, you know, ultimately, you need to have new kinds of designs for airplanes and uh, for tankers. Uh, and or new kinds of fuel. You know, COP18, the, the 18th meeting of these negotiations is coming up at the uh, end of November. Um, you know, are, are there things that you're optimistic about in terms of where the, the uh, negotiations are going this time? No, not really. Um, I think what's happened is we have have agreed to basically keep trying. Well, well, that's good. We should, of course, the problem is still there. It's actually getting worse. So that's, that's important. Um, the problem is we're basically looking to try the same approach. And it's as if, you know, having failed for the last 20 years in getting this approach to work, we think that if we only try it for another 20 years, we'll be more successful. And one of the concerns I have is that we're now in this round where uh, countries have made individual pledges none of which is um, binding. And they're supposed to meet these pledges by 2020. And it's by 2020 that we're supposed to have a new agreement to get the whole world to move forward. Well, mm-hmm. we've said before that we want to have a new agreement by a certain date. And we either didn't get the agreement, as in Copenhagen itself, or we got the agreement, like Kyoto, and it didn't do any good. So the idea that you're going to keep doing this I think it really concerns me, and in particular, this obsession in the, all the negotiations over its entire history on targets and timetables has been the, 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 the biggest um, obstacle to making progress on this issue. The targets and timetables are meaningless. They don't mean anything. They're not useful. No country controls its aggregate emissions. They control individual things. If you look at the emissions trading system in Europe, it controls less than half of emissions in Europe. You need to focus much more on the things that domestic laws and regulations can control, which would be individual sectors, technologies, and that kind of thing. And, of course, the whole problem with the, with the individual country emissions is it's only global emissions that matter. And when you've got globalization and production relocating all over the place, and this problem I mentioned before, production and consumption, it's just simply the wrong way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we need to take a very, very different approach. And what I'm most concerned about is that the same people who have been working on this for 20 years just keep coming up with the same ideas and wanting to just push them harder as if that's going to make a difference. It's not. I think we need to take a new approach. So if I were to be, if I were to be optimistic, it's because I could see in these negotiations 
that a new approach is being tried. The first one to pursue is one that, as I mentioned before, has been supported by the United States and by other countries, including Canada and uh, Mexico. And that is to focus on having an agreement uh, to limit HFCs mm-hmm. through the Montreal Protocol. Again, I'd rather there be a separate protocol under the Framework Convention on Climate Change, but having it controlled under Montreal Protocol would be, uh, would be a positive step. So there are things we can do, uh, we're just simply not doing them. Great. Well, Dr. Barrett, thank you so much for your insights. It's, it's been a pleasure. And we're just talking to Dr. Scott Barrett from the University of Columbia on the climate regime. Well, welcome back. Uh, Dr. Barrett has kind of agreed to join us on this week's Garakotron 5000. Today's game is the collective action game, and Dr. Barrett is going to tell us the rules first. Okay, so I'll give everyone in the room two playing cards. You get a red card and a black card. So, for example, you might have the black, you might have the um, uh, jack of spades and the jack of hearts. Okay. Okay. And then I tell everyone in the room that I'm going to ask each of you to give back to me one card without anyone else knowing which card you handed to me. Okay. And you're going to get a payoff depending on which card you handed to me and which cards all the other people handed to me. You get $5 if you keep your red card, and you get $1 for every red card handed in. So what that means is if you have 20 people in the room, and let's say 10 of them hand in the red cards, those 10 who handed in the red cards each get $10. They get $1 for every red card handed in. The other 10 people get $15. Why? They get $10 for the red cards that were handed in, plus they get $5 because they kept their red card. Okay, so what each person wants to do for himself is to hold on to his red card because he's always $4 ahead if he does that. He gets uh-huh. $1 for handing it in, he gets 5 for keeping it. So he's better off keeping it, gets $4 extra. However, everyone in the room is much better off if everyone hands in their red card. If you think about it, if you hand in your red card and everyone gains $1, that means the entire room gains 20 and only costs you 5 That's the collective action problem in a nutshell. And I've played this game uh, literally hundreds of times. I've played it with every type of person you could imagine, including uh, uh, people only from West Africa, people who were only economists, people who were only environmentalists, people who were diplomats, negotiators, uh, you name it. I've played it with every kind of person you can imagine, and the results have always been the same, which is that some people hand in their red cards and some people don't. Handing in your red card is a metaphor for reducing emissions. There's The reason you get that kind of mixed result is because people are conflicted. They know that they're better off holding onto the red cards given what everyone else is doing, and they also know that if everyone does that, they're all in trouble. <laughs> so that's why these what, what this game does is it shows how important the enforcement is. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you five real and also fictional characters and see uh, what you think, which card you think they would hand in. First subject, red card, black card, celebrity and millionaire, or billionaire, uh, Donald Trump. Oh, black card. <laughs> subject number two, uh, self-professed uh, energy enthusiast, T. Boone Pickens, red card or black card? That's a little harder. As I knew about him earlier in his life, I would say black. Later, maybe red. On the whole, I'm leaning more towards black. All right. Um, subject number three, former presidential candidate uh, Al Gore, red card or black card? Red. red. 
Uh, subject number four, uh, head of the UNFCCC, uh, Christine de Figueres. Oh, red card. Okay. Finally, from a country whose motives are not always known, a president of China, Hu Jintao, red card or black card? You know, that's a little harder to answer. I think individually, thinking of China, leaning towards black, but one thing I'm pretty sure of is that if he were assured that others would hand in their red, he would, he would be willing to hand in his red. Mm-hmm. And that is the collective action problem. You know, it's, it's fun the way you've done this. I think since I've played this game so many times, there are different kinds of people out there. And there are some people who will always do the right thing, as it were, no matter the personal cost. You know, we think of that in terms of dissidents uh, who can uh, be subject to tremendous difficulties uh, for maintaining a position, uh, but they just can't, that's who they are, and they just can't cave in. And I think in terms of these global problems, if the entire world were Swedish, uh, I think we would address these problems more easily. On the other hand, I, I also think that for most of us, we're willing to do the right thing, as it were, if we can be assured that a lot of others will do the right thing too, so that our actions really will make a difference mm-hmm. and that the overall uh, system is fair. And that's really what these treaties are for. They're made to provide that kind of assurance. Dr. Fred, thank you so much for joining us on Grok Science this week. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok Science, you can email us at science at groks.net. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net, on Facebook and Twitter. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music.